Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. The Saltwater Guides Association is a coalition of forward-thinking guides, small business owners, and like-minded anglers who understand the value of keeping fish in the water. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Willie Goldsmith and Tony Friedrich to discuss the health of the East Coast striper fishery. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Watermaster. I've been using my Watermaster for nearly 15 years now, and I've come to appreciate it more each year. The Watermaster folds into an extremely compact package, and its frameless design allows for complete assembly and disassembly in under 10 minutes. Whether it be for a simple day of fishing on a Skeena tributary or a week-long fly-in trip in the remote mountains of BC, the Watermaster has always been the one tool necessary to make it all happen. You can find more information at www.bigskyinflatables.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment just to let all of you know that we are about to open up the doors to our once-a-year all-inclusive membership, which includes access not only to our premium membership, but also to all of our master classes. The best part is that it comes with a ton of bonuses, all at a price that you simply will not believe. Visit anchoredoutdoors.com and follow the prompts of the pop-up. So uh, my name is Tony Friedrich. I'm the vice president and policy director for the American Saltwater Guides Association. John McMurray and I started this association. Uh, we're almost two years old now uh, because we felt like 
there wasn't an organized, consistent voice for conservation and the recreational fishing community on the East Coast uh, for saltwater species. And um, John and I have worked on a lot of different policy issues over the years. We're, we're good buddies, we're old friends, uh, and we felt like it was time to spread out, become formalized uh, with with the things that are our core beliefs. And um, I can't believe how well it's gone in the last two years. I can't believe how much support we've gotten um, doing this policy work for as long as I have, you know, 15 plus years. I can tell you, I've never been more excited to get up in the morning uh, and sink my teeth into this stuff because I really feel like this is the first time where, you know, it's different when you work for another group, but when you actually build it with your own little hands and, and, and you kind of design it to, to work around the obstacles that most of these groups face, um, you know, it's, it's really been an incredible thing. So that's, that's pretty much who I, who I am. I fish when I'm sleeping, I dream about fish. When I wake up in the morning, I think about them. When I get 10 seconds free, I'm tying flies. Um, and I'm probably the luckiest guy in the world because the thing that I care about the the most besides my family, I get to protect every day. And Willie, what's your story? Sure. Uh, so my name is Willie Goldsmith. I'm the executive director of the American Saltwater Guides Association. Um, like Tony, I am a fish junkie. So grew up in downtown Boston, uh, catching carp and largemouth bass in the Charles River. Uh, taking the subway over to the TD Garden, which is where the Boston Celtics and Boston Boston Bruins play, uh, right uh, by the Charles River Locks, which is a big um, striped bass fishing area in the spring when the river herring come in to spawn. So that's kind of where I was first introduced to striped bass and um, have been a lifelong fisherman, uh, magazine writer, uh, have a background in fisheries science. So a lot of my uh, doctoral work in grad school focused on human dimensions of recreational fishing. I think, you know, we often focus a lot on the fish, but you have to think sometimes about the people and what motivates them, uh, what gets them on the water. And one thing that's really interested me is looking at kind of the non-consumptive benefits of, of fishing. And so by that, I mean, you know, getting, getting benefit out of fishing, not because you're taking fish home, but because you're out there, you're out in the environment, you're learning about the species, you know, you're really getting that full immersive experience. Um, and certainly seeing what Tony and John put together uh, at the American Saltwater Guides Association um, was pretty impressive to me. It was kind of this this voice that really wasn't being heard uh, among recreational fishery folks. And so that was really exciting to me. And fortunately for me, they decided to, uh, to, to take a chance and bring me on. So it's, it's been an incredible whirlwind experience um, working on a broad variety of issues and really trying to uh, put forth recreational fisheries policies that focus on abundance and, and um, you know, really having healthy stocks as opposed to trying to get uh, maximum harvest at any time. Now, it's funny because when I first spoke to you on the phone a few months ago, both of you, I've definitely felt a bit of like yin and yang. I felt, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't see you. We were just on the phone and I remember thinking they are different. And in sitting here now, I was totally right. I mean, <laughs> no, this, is, this, is a, this is a joke that we have. Depending on the day, it's yin and yang. It is play by play and color commentary. It's good cop, bad cop. Basically, in every aspect of our personalities, in every aspect of our physical appearance, in every aspect of the way yeah. we talk, uh, we are incredibly different. And I think 
for, for, for both of us, I mean, kind of the fact that we are here getting along, working in lockstep every day is really a testament to how important this cause is. You know, I think recreational fisheries and these issues we work on, they bring all sorts of different people together. Uh, you know, for me, that's been a huge draw my whole life, you know, um, meeting different kinds of people and understanding where they come from and coming together over this, over the shared interests. Really yeah. A- April, we would, for years, John and I would go into offices and they would kind of, you know, whether it was a elected official, a bureaucrat, biologist, whatever, and they would they would kind of, you know, you'd walk out of the office and and you know that they were thinking, uh, these two clowns, you know, these 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 guys are just fishermen. They don't understand anything. They don't get the science. So we were like, oh yeah, well, we're gonna hire a kid with a PhD <laughs> who's got a pedigree like a thoroughbred, and we're gonna bring him in, we're gonna bring him in the office with us. And then what are you gonna say to us? So it's kind of like, ah, yeah, like come on, yeah. yeah. Let, let me paint a picture for people. So, Tony, you look rough and rugged and awesome <laughs> and fishy, and he's in his tying room, and there's just fishing books and tinsel for days and Tupperware containers of, of, of stuff, materials. Willie looks literally, Lily, Willie, Willie, if I was walking down the shopping mall and saw you standing beside a mannequin, I don't think I could tell the difference. Yeah, he's, you are he's, the most polished perfect person yeah. and look at this house like not not even a frame is slightly no. off it's like Trust the most- me, my background <laughs> is very well cultivated you know <laughs> over here we have a lot of fishing rods leaning haphazardly against the wall but i, okay. that. <laughs> I will april i will tell you give you faith back in the whole in the whole situation willie would literally fish in a pothole in a road if he thought there was a bullhead catfish in it. Like he has this <laughs> but sickness, but no, I mean, look to the listeners, April spot on. I'm not denying anything. I'm a haggard gray beard, long tooth. You know, my, my hands are like so beaten up. Every bone in my body's been broken. I'm almost 50 and like it shows. And Willie looks like JFK jr. So it's like, yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah. And it's hysterical. It's the funny in it. But I'll tell you, you know, April, what Willie said, like, it's seriously Oscar and Felix from the odd couple. But, uh, but I don't even think we've ever had an argument and we must talk to each other five hours a day. And, um, and, and it's pretty cool because when you, when you have this single minded focus of, you know, your job is to do what's best for the resource we don't, we're not really encumbered by egos because we realize, I realize that I don't bring to the table what he does and he sees the same thing. So it's while we are complete opposites, our, our egos and pride are in check and we respect each other. And it's, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine hiring a better executive director at any time in my life to help steer this organization. Um, you know, our success is a, a, a large part of testament to, to Willie's passion for what we do. We're all fishermen, right? At the end of the day. But so let's talk about the table. Let's talk about what table we're bringing stuff to. What is the ASGA? And, and I, I have to just preface and ask a, an introductory question. When I first had seen your website and started looking into a little bit about you guys, I saw Guides Association and I expected to be um, speaking to a bunch of guides. Who's the guide here? Tony, were you a guide? John, John started it, John McMurray, and he's the, uh, he's the owner operator of one more cast guide service. He runs two contenders and two skiffs. Um, 
so John was the one who started it. Ninety percent of our board members are guides. So we have board members from uh, Maine to Florida, leaving out Georgia is our one our one gap on the East Coast. Um, and as far as the discussion about, you know, so I'm a, I am a policy fisheries policy person through and through. That's every job that I've had for a very long time. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a captain. Um but I've been working in this arena for, for a very long time. And it's the voice that wasn't being heard. And the reason why John and I sat down and said, you know, we have to make this a guides association is because uh, a lot of times when other uh, groups, other advocacy groups advocate for one issue or another, um, you kind of get pigeonholed and, and, for average wreck anglers, people who just care about conservation, want to be part of a group, you know, you go in there, you advocate for them. And the, those people that would laugh at me and John for not being scientists will look at you and say, well, yeah, it's your hobby. You don't have a stake in this game. And we would say, oh, no, no, there's there's all these guides, all these tackle shops, all these groups and their their lives depend on these fish. And it, there needs to be a lot of these fish in the water. No, it's just your hobby. So again, kind of like the back at you with Willie, like we're going to hire a PhD from Harvard. Well, our jobs depend on it. We're the guides association. So we have a, we have a very large economic stake in this. Um, and, and that message, our message is pretty simple. You know, you take care of the fish, the fish take care of you, better business through conservation. And April, I mean, I know your background with steelhead. So, you know, and, and all the all the issues and we can get into that, but all the issues that steelhead face, um, it's a lot. A lot of that is the same for striped bass. So if if you don't have that, we built this association so people would have to listen. That's the best way that I can from from the first brick to what we're doing now. We're very conscious and there's a lot of experience a lot of years of experience in dealing in a lot of different of these fish, a lot of different fisheries arenas. Uh, and so the goal, the goal more than anything was to make sure that we were heard. Well, let's, let's dive right into the nitty gritty. So when you first reached out to me and I saw stripers, maybe I was just scrolling the email quickly, but I remember thinking, Oh, these guys are like everyone else in, you know, Eastern Canada. They want to get rid of the stripers. And then when I realized you were advocating for the stripers, uh, I, I kind of, my head did a, I, I did a turnaround. So what, what's going on? I, I mean, I'm so used to people wanting to get rid of them. I'd love to hear where you're at with this whole fight and what the fight is. Well, Willie, real quick, because you're the scientist, do you want to explain why the folks in Canada are seeing an increase in the population of stripers? And, you know, April, I think you know where we're going with this. And let's just say, you know, because we have warming waters, there are a lot of species that are interacting that never act, interacted before. You know, ask the main lobster guys uh, how black, or, you know, the uh, rather the Cape Cod lobster guys, how they feel about black sea bass because they're eating all the baby lobsters. And they were never there before. So, you know, a lot of stuff is interacting. Uh, Willie, you're the scientist. I think you can, if you want to handle a April's question about why the guys in Canada are sick of them and, and they, they're the linchpin of our lives. 
Yeah, I, I don't know if I have much more to add, Tony. Certainly, you know, climate change is having an impact. There are several river systems up in up in eastern Canada uh, that are spawning areas for stripers. And, uh, you know, it's it's not a far reach to imagine that with with, you know, the Gulf of Maine warming and, and other areas um, north, you know, in, in eastern Canada warming, uh, that those areas are becoming more, you know, more habitable for stripers. So uh, certainly a, a different issue than what we're dealing with down here. We've got a, a stock that's at a 25 year low where we're trying to figure out ways to uh, to bring it back. Maybe it would help the listeners just a basic history of striped bass. Um, <clears throat> striped bass recovery was the greatest conservation story in U.S. fisheries. Um, in the in the in the late 70s and the early 80s, the population was decimated. Um, in the in the mid 80s, they the managers made a move to protect uh, a year class of fish. So striped bass don't spawn well every year. Usually in the Chesapeake Bay, we produce. I live on the Chesapeake Bay. But we produce about a minimum of 70 percent of the coastal stock of striped bass uh, are, are born in the Chesapeake Bay. So we had a robust year class in the mid 80s and the managers made a decision to protect that year class as it matriculated through the system. So they adjusted size and creel limits based on making sure that those fish could reach about eight years of age when they spawn. Um, takes a long time for a striped bass to spawn, real long time. Uh, so with those regulations in place, you know, you had a stock that was, I'll put it to you this way. I, I fish saltwater my pretty much my whole life and I had, didn't see a striped bass. I saw one in like 1988 and it was 14 inches long. And, you know, it was everyone on the beach ran down and was like, looking and high five in the guy. And, um, we didn't, they weren't there. They didn't exist. You didn't catch them. Uh, that's how bad the population was. So protecting that year class up until 1998 doubled the spawning stock biomass on the Susquehanna Flats, which is the main confluence of, uh, you know, several rivers at the very top of the bay and, and a massive spawning aggregation takes place there. So they can, they can take a pretty good sample of the females the older females and and that's what the spawning stock biomass is called all the fertile fertile uh, spawning age females so you know from 1988 on we just saw an incredible meteoric rise in population and and as that population rose effort went up more trips per year the guide industry exploded um the ta tackle shops popped up everywhere and it, it drove the fishing economy on the East coast. Uh, even with the declines in population now, there are more trips taken for striped bass than any other species on the East coast. So if you, I mean, you think about redfish and speckled trout and the, all the other stuff that we have, there's more trips, recreational anglers, striped bass than any other fish on the East coast. And, um, Really, April, like I don't I don't know. Uh, I'm not as familiar with your fishery. I mean, I, I look at the pictures and my jaw drops and I see the steelhead and the beautiful landscapes and everything. But um, for our fishery, striped bass are every man's fish. So, you know, John, John has a 36 contender. I have a 27 contender. I have a skiff. You don't need any of that to catch a striped bass. You know, a, a dad 
or a mom can take their kids and and be all in uh, with a with cheapy equipment, a hundred bucks and a couple of lures, and they can walk right on a beach in Jersey and have a reasonable expectation of catching their first saltwater fish. That's why it's so they're so important to us because for saltwater where we live, it's like the gateway drug. You know, they're they're a bluegill. Right. They're, you know, they're a bluegill that can get 50 pounds. So, you know, and and pull your arm out of your socket. So um, I think that's why they're so important to us, because it's not only that they drive the economy, but there's an entire culture and, and there's factions in that culture. You have surf casters and fly fishermen and boat guys and trollers and wire liners, pin hookers with, you know, the uh, drag and drop guys with uh or snag and drop guys with menhaden, you know, it's, and oh, we all don't like each other, by the way. Like everyone, everyone just likes it. You know, a little tiny thing, you know, like you're sinking line, you heathen. So, you know, it's, it's insane. But the cool thing is with stripers, you can catch them how you want to catch them. You don't have, it's, it's a tie that binds. It, it's such an incredible fish. So anyway, the population explodes. We have these in, just um, years that if I told people about, they wouldn't believe us. You know, days when you'd go to the flats and catch a hundred fish a piece with three guys on a boat, and each one of you'd catch ten fish over forty-five inches in a day on the fly in three feet of water, and to go to go to the Bay Bridge Tunnel and see ten thousand gannets where it looks like a cloud. And it's a, it's a, we call it a gannet storm and, and they're just pounding the water. You know, if you've ever seen that in National Geographic and they're come up and it looks like a tornado because they fly in like concentric circles to get altitude and then boom, they dive right back down. So you have this incredible, you know, this incredible thing going on where these huge 30 to 40 pound fish are rolling on the surface. All this bait's flushing out of the bay, 10,000 birds just crashing. Every guy you know is out there. Everyone's laughing and high-fiving and going to the restaurant afterwards. And now it's over. It's done. We beat the brakes off of them. We killed them. Right now? Killed them. Again? So wait, it was gone, it came back, and now, and and now it's gone again? Them. Wait, okay, I've got a few questions before we progress down <laughs> yeah, that road. <laughs> so is it, this is a really silly question, but a striped bass, is that the same as a white bass? No, it's the it's striped bass is Marone saxatillus. Um, it related to, you know, like white perch, which is Amer- Marone Americanus, Americana rather. And um, it, they are related to a, a, a white bass. Uh, white bass is a Marone too, right? Right, Willie? I, be- I believe so, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so April, um, yeah, so stripers are what, you know, what are called anadromous. So they, they're, they're born in freshwater, uh, just like salmon. They, you know, they head out to, to saltwater where they, they feed and grow, and then they come back to, to reproduce in, in freshwater again. So they're kind of, you know, our iconic fish here on the East Coast, as Tony said. Um, believe in recent years, like they're around 10% of total saltwater trips that anglers take in the United States. They're a huge driver of the economy and the recreation. So yeah, think about that with tarpon and bonefish and all these other, you know, flashy fish. This one fish represents 10% of the total trips. It's pretty incredible. You tuna and, and billfish and it's wild. Yeah, that also explains, I didn't realize that they were anadromous. I always thought they were just chasing salmon up 
up the freshwater. I didn't realize that they were there to spawn. And, so, and that's another just, and that's another thing that's really, you know, when it comes back to every man's fish, right? So, you know, surf, boat, wireline, bait, fly, whatever you want, freshwater, saltwater, right? Um I, I live in Washington, DC. We're in the tidal fresh Potomac River. We have stripers here. You know, you go to uh, the the outer the outer Cape Cod, you know, Provincetown, Race Point, stripers there, you know, full saline water. So they're everywhere. Um and when they're healthy, they're everywhere and they can be caught in a lot of different ways. So April, it, okay, so, it takes them like eight years. So, so if a if a striped bass is born here in the Chesapeake Bay, um, there's a metric we call it YOY Young of the Year, and they do like thousands of sane studies in all the tributaries where spawning occurs, and we get a pretty good metric on if the spawn was successful or not. So we'll know how good our fishing will be for like the next eight years. If we so so you know you can see oh we got three bad spawns in a row we got a good spawn okay two years from now we're gonna have real good fishing when these when these fish start growing up right so and and then they join the coastal stock so they just completely they're no longer resident fish of the Chesapeake Bay on like about their seventh or eighth year at winter they leave the Chesapeake Bay they join the ocean and they completely change migratory routes you know historically from North Carolina to Maine and they're an ocean fish. And the only time that they come back to us is for a couple of weeks in the spring when they spawn. Got it. So what shut the tap off? Cause a few years ago they seem to be prevalent in everywhere. So one of the things that uh, is real interesting about striped bass is if you look at the, and this, I think this is a huge factor. If you look at the age charts, um, they'll say 18 years old, 50 inches and striped bass can get well above 50 inches, but that's kind of like this mythical line in the sand that like, they, you know, that's the biggest of the big, if you get a 50, you've done something. That's uh, you don't catch very many 50 inch fish, especially the way that I, you know, fly fish, you get a handful in your life. So the reality is that they've done that, that they base that off scale regression studies where they pull the scale off the fish and they count the rings and striped bass do not get a ring for every year after they're about eight years old. So when they do the otolith studies, when they actually crack the fish open, pull the ear bone out, the otolith hit that with a microscope and look at it, you know, these, these 40 plus inch fish can be well over 35 years old. So they're not easily replaced, you know, and, and, um, essentially they've been overfished. So, so because there was such a high population of fish, it, people match, and this is Willie's wheelhouse. That's what he did all his PhD work in. But because there was such a high population of fish in the late nineties, early two thousands, people fished more because you knew that you could go out and catch a 40 pound fish. Whereas now you're not going to go out and catch a 40. The trips have dropped off since the peak. I may be off by a little bit here, but 10 million trips that we've lost about 10 million trips a year. So at the peak in 2006, the recreational anglers took 25 million trips for striped bass. Now they are taking about 15 a year. So, so what I'm saying is because there's less fish, people fish less because there's more fish, they fish more when they were fishing more, that pressure that they exerted on those big old fish absolutely decimated them. So 
stripers female uh, stripe bass population is based on i said it before the spawning stock biomass which is the population of sexually mature females we're at a 25 year low so you're not saying that they're being commercially fished oh out. no you're saying no. that they're being 100 recreationally fished no, out just, just just a little bit of con just a little bit of context april so uh, in 2019, about 90% of removals, which is, you know, basically saying dead fish caused by fishing, uh, were from the recreational sector. So it's really a recreational issue. And of that 90%, a little more than half of that is from catch and release fishing. So again, you think about the huge magnitude of this fishery, um, you know, it's Right now, the, the best science we have tells us about 9% of, of fish that are caught don't survive. But if you're catching and releasing 25, you know, 25 or 30 million fish in a year, uh, you're going to have some, you know, some, some mortality from that. And you add that together with the fish that are harvested and you end up with a really big impact. So a lot of people, you know, they try to blame the commercial sector and say this is a commercial issue. And the reality is, you know, here in our fishery on the, on the East Coast, uh, the commercial fishery is much more accountable. You know, they have a much... Uh, it's much easier to kind of count how many fish are being harvested and sold. But when you have, you know, millions of anglers going out, it's a lot harder to keep track of what's going on and understanding kind of how to both measure and, you know, manage that that huge fishing community uh, is really challenging. And that's a big reason for why we are where we are right now. Wow. Well, a couple of things here. So first of all, 9% mortality on catch and release. That is insane. Are they just incredibly sensitive? I think with steelhead, it's like 3%. No, April, it's how people are fishing for them. So you can mitigate. We have a pretty good chunk of science and we're getting more science every day on catch and release mortality of striped bass. There are things that are incredibly lethal you know, put it into like the over the 30% category of lethality. And then there's, there's ways to fish where it's not lethal. So there's, there's a lot of factors, right? If you catch them in fresh water, there's not one shred of salinity and it's above 63 degrees, the surface temp or 65 degrees. You're looking at uh, going from like 1% to 18% mortality. They don't recover. Uh, bait fishing with J hooks is particularly lethal because of the just the biological structure of their mouth and their throat. If they swallow bait with a J hook, a disproportionate number of them are hooked in the liver, and that's you're dead. They're dead. There's no. It's it's just the way their body structure is and how they're a vacuum feeder. You know, that they open that huge mouth and it flushes in and especially with smaller fish have a tendency to be more competitive. So if if I throw a hunk of squid out, a big fish will kind of just be like mosey up, sly up real slow and just barely sip it. And if there's little fish around, they'll run like rats to it and and all like, you know, be like little piranhas and they're much more likely to be deep hooked. So you have factors like. What's the temperature of the water? What's the salinity of water? What's the temperature of the, the ambient air temperature? Is it is there a 20-degree difference between the water temperature and the air temperature? Because they can burn their lungs. So a lot of this is angler education where we can mitigate a tremendous amount of this mortality. But, you know, April, we're talking about saltwater fishermen on the East Coast. We're not talking about steelhead fishermen in B.C., Right. I mean, I don't know how else to put that. I love our fishermen, but we're a couple of generations behind. 
the the education that you get maybe in like the fly fishing trout community or even like largemouth bass fishermen you know the, the, uh you know these guys are just so much more advanced in, in in their knowledge their practices the way that they go after the fish you know and again well when you have an if it's an every man's fishery and you've got every man and most of those men and women aren't educated, it's just inevitable. And it's sad because it is a gateway and they will be if there are just enough fish to get them there. Do you see potential for hypocrisy with it being a guides association? I mean, the whole point of guides is to get more people out into more fish. I know there's room for education. They can educate their clients, but are you running into any issues with people saying, yeah, we need to stop killing fish recreationally, but you guys are guides and you're the pinnacle of exactly that. So, uh, you know, April, when you do this, as long as I have, you have a pretty thick skin. So I know why we're doing it and what we're doing. And I don't really, I, 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 <laughs> I couldn't give two ant and a shinola about, uh, what other people, you know, it's real easy to sit in the cheap seats and throw rotten fruit at people who are the leaders, the guys with the flag standing on the ridge. I don't care. You know, I want my kid to fish. I want my grandkids to fish. I want your grandkids to fish. I want Willie's. I want everyone's. I want there to be a healthy resource. I don't playing a guessing game on what people are going to take away or think about you because you're taking a stand. I gave that up like a decade ago. Um, my greatest legacy in my life would be sitting on a, on a porch when I'm like 80, if I make it that long and like, you know, maybe 10, five, 10 years, you know, when I'm 80, um, and, and watching like a bunch of like high school kids run with fishing rods down the beach because there's a striper blitz that, that, that'd be the greatest thing in the world. So like, if somebody wants to, you know, they can say whatever they want about us. Um, you know, we, we do extract from the resource, but it doesn't mean that you don't care about it. And, and I'll also say, you know, some folks have talked about, you know, this being a waste of the resource, right? So these are, you know, under, you know unutilized fish because you throw them back and they die. And I think, you know, the obvious response to that is, you know, maybe there's a 10% chance this fish doesn't survive, but if you kill it and harvest it, it definitely is not surviving. And so I think it's a matter of trying to figure out, you know, where, where your priorities are and, and where the value in this fishery is. And, and just one note on the on the post-release mortality, uh, the 9% number. So as, as Tony mentioned, you know, that's the best available science we have right now. That's what's used in stock assessments. Um, there is some really exciting work that's going to be coming out in the next couple of years on that. But, um, you know, that's that that number is it's a 25-year-old number based on one study of really small stripers that were um, put in a salt pond and then released into uh, into a net pen. So it's certainly, you know, it's 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 what we have to work with. But I think given the the advances in technology and what we've seen over the past couple of decades, we're going to get some really um, exciting new information that'll, you know, give us a better sense of, you know, what are the specific levers that we can pull to, to try to mitigate that. What are the guides planning on doing? Are they planning on changing or revising how they fish? Are they planning on having an educational program? Are they planning on implementing various licenses that where fees go towards conservation? Like, what are the guides proposing that they can do to try to lower that um, mortality rate as long as they can or as far as they can? So I think, April, I think this is a good chance to kind of talk about what's currently going on with striped bass management and how we're getting involved. Uh, and before we do that, I think it might be beneficial to just step back a second and talk about like 
the kind of wonkiness of striped bass biology that makes this whole thing a little bit tricky. Uh, some of this might sound familiar to you. Um, so Tony was talking about, you know, YOY, our young of year index, and how healthy our, our juvenile fish are. And, you know, the, the, the success of a given spawning year is called recruitment. And one thing that's, you know, really difficult with striped bass is um, their recruitment is largely dependent on what's going on in the environment. So we know that generally years that have, um, you know, high degrees of rainfall and river flow and have low temperatures lead to higher juvenile survival. And for a, much of the stock size for striped bass, like it, it doesn't matter how many females there are, it really matters what the conditions are. So some of the control as to how successful the year class is, is going to be out of our hands. The challenge comes in trying to, as Tony said, shepherd that year class through to where those fish, you know, that big bumper crop of, of fish become reproductively viable, then they can reproduce and kind of increase building up in the system. Uh, the other things that are important to remember are, as Tony said, the, the larger striped bass uh, produce more eggs and they produce higher quality eggs. It's important to keep those fish around. It's also important to keep a lot of different ages of fish around. So smaller fish tend to spawn later in the season than bigger fish. So if you have you know good conditions at one time of the year, uh, you're going to want to make sure that you have fish spawning at that time of year. So this kind of you know leads to our you know our pushing for both. Uh, keeping the older fish in the system so that they can be around long enough to have successful spawning years, and then also having a bunch of different spawning age female year classes around that in a given year they can be successful. And so in our kind of priorities for management, we really want to ensure that you know there's there's abundance of these mature fish and that those big fish are around. And that's going to be a big priority for us uh, as we move into um, a, you know, a management discussion for striped bass, which is going to be happening over the next two years. So as Tony mentioned, striped bass are right now at a 25-year low. Um, they're considered overfished, and overfishing is occurring, um, which the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission... Willie, can you explain that? Because people hear that, and nobody gets it. So there's two different classifications when a population is in decline. They can be overfished, or overfish, overfishing is occurring, or both. So right. Willie, so, can you just tell the listeners sure. that? Yeah, so overfished is a population status. So basically, if a if the population of a species falls below a given threshold, then the species is considered overfished. So right now, based on the most recent stock assessment for stripers, we know that the um, spawning stock biomass is about 75% of where it needs to be for the stock to not be overfished. So we're overfished. Overfishing is basically the rate at which fish are being removed. And if that's you know, above above a certain threshold, and we're also above that threshold. So basically at this point, the stock is both overfished, there are less fish than there should be, and overfishing is occurring, fish are being removed more quickly than they should be. So we're kind of in a, in a tricky situation. Um, and the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which manages striped bass, uh, undertook an action this year in 2020 to try to reduce the fishing mortality to end the overfishing but we're still in this overfished condition. And so our next big challenge is trying to bring the stock back to a healthy level from the overfished condition. And April, you had asked a question earlier, um, you know, uh, I guess it was probably twofold and I thought it was a good question. Um, you know, are, are we hypocritical for doing this? And then the other question was, what are we doing to address the catch and release mortality? And Willie was touching on that. And the, there's so there, I got three answers to your two questions. You know, our guys are like Paul Dixon and Jamie Boyle and 
Kyle Schaefer and I mean Tom Roller, John McMurray, like these are the top guides on the East Coast. These these are well-seasoned veterans and they take it very seriously to take care of the fish. And generally speaking, their clients are in it for the experience uh with striped bass. I mean, they'll, you know, they'll take them tuna fishing and and they'll kill some tuna. No, they'll bring home some sushi. But for stripers, generally you'll hear people say things like, can we catch a couple of bluefish or black sea bass so I can take those home and let's go catch and release some stripers. So, you know, the, our guys and the clients that they take are keenly aware of the situation with striped bass and, and you're seeing shifts in their behavior. Even if they wanted to take one home, our guides will actually look at them and say, nah, you know, I don't think, let me, let me tell you about what's going on with stripers. So we're walking the walk. I guess that that would be the one thing that I would say to you. Um, and in regard to catch and release mortality, um, it it may seem like the biggest issue. It is not the the biggest issue is how many fish we are killing. That that what the limits are set at, and it there there are difficult fish to manage because they are so late to sexually mature. You have these robust year classes where you know so for example right now with the harvest the harvest size for an ocean striped bass is 28 to 35 inches and with a with so it's a slot you, nothing too small nothing too big in the ocean the the last really good year class is the 2015s they're going to be legal next year they're going to be they're going to be 28 inches and they're going to get massacred they're going to get slaughtered and we did not want to see that happen when they adjusted the regulations last year. We wanted to see the regulations instead of being a slot. We wanted it to be 35 and above 35 inches and above because statistically speaking, there are not enough big fish left. (laughs) It would have curtailed harvest to a point where these fish could have recovered. This 2015 year class could have spawned unmolested for a couple of years but you're going to see effort and harvest go through the roof next year. So these are, these are the issues that we're trying to address. And Willie, uh, I mean, if April has another question, we'd, we would be remiss not to talk about what's going on with management at some point. Yeah. Well, what's the bag limit? I'm sorry if this has been covered, but what's the current bag limit? So, cur- One. so currently, yeah. So as I mentioned, um, the most recent stock assessment was finished in April of 2019 and then found that striped bass are overfished. So the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission added an, uh, finished, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission uh, initiated an addendum, which for 2020 established a one fish slot limit of 28 to 35 inches. And the goal of that was to, was to reduce harvest by, by reduce harvest by 18% for the year. And we'll see. If what was it last year? It was one fish, a uh, 28 inch minimum size. This is for the with no max size. This is for the ocean. Chesapeake Bay has has separate regulations. Okay, and in the eight in the eighties, what was that? What was going on there? Oh man, the, in every every place had a little bit of a different regulation, but in the Chesapeake Bay, it was a panfish fishery. I think the limit was twelve inches. Okay. But, I mean, that, was, that being said, and Tony, you can speak to this better than I can. But in nineteen eighty five, basically. Um, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission uh, developed a new amendment to protect 
kind of what we're talking about, you know, a strong year class. So 1982 was a really strong year class. They basically initiated management in 1985 to protect those fish. And uh, a lot of states actually put moratoriums in place to protect those fish and, and let them kind of, you know, matriculate through the system and, and get to spawning age. Yeah, I've got a couple more questions about just the biology and migration. Um, with steelhead and salmon, we call them like one salt, two salt, three salt fish. How many years do they spend, how many years in the fresh before they migrate back to the salt? So striped bass tend to tend to migrate out of the bay when they're, you know, between seven and eight years old, say. And that's when they're, you know, when um, I believe males are mature and many females are mature and they're out in the ocean. And then they are, again, for my salmon speak, they are iteroparous. So they, you know, they, they spawn multiple years. Um, and as, as Tony said, you know, some of these fish can, can be 30 years old, so they can have really long lifespans. That's amazing. What about bycatch? So if, if there was some sort of policy put in where you could not keep any striper, how difficult, or or even target them? Um, what's the bycatch rate? Are they, is it is it just impossible? Do you end up catching them anyway? April, I can tell you that would be just that would be virtually impossible because you know. So I take uh, we you know we were when we talked we were talking about our kids and how we love to take them fishing and stuff. So I live uh, one block. I mean, I can just walk a block from my house and uh, and cast flies into the bay. And, uh, you know, when my son's done with school or something and, and it's not 30 degrees outside and we're getting dark at four o'clock and we're basically crying over the dinner table we'll, on a normal day, we'll walk out there and, um, and, you know, I'll tie on a, a size four clouser, uh, and, and get him to get him to throw some floating line, four feet deep, scattered rocks, hard, hard kind of sandy bottom, patchy weeds. And, um, one cast, he'll catch a white perch maybe 10 inches next cast he'll catch anywhere from like a 12 to 22 23 inch striper next cast he this year redfish uh cast after that who knows but you know every little kid that fishes off a dock with a bloodworm and drops it to the bottom they're going to catch a ton of little stripers you know 12 inch and under stripers you go bottom fishing in 40 feet of water here you're going to catch little stripers you uh I mean, literally anything you do, you're going to catch little stripers. Um, and so, how do you manage that? That sounds impossible. Well, I think one thing, you know, one it's it's a challenge, but also an opportunity for us at ASGA is that we kind of operate both like in the regulatory world, right? So we're trying to change regulations and, and management, but also you know in the social and kind of you know norms setting world, right? So trying to communicate, you know, as we talked about best practices for catch and release. Um, and, you know, along with that is maybe there are times you shouldn't go striped bass fishing. So if the water is really warm and it's fresh water, you know, maybe there's a regulatory fix for that. But maybe it's also largely an outreach and communications question. You know, I think there's there's multiple ways to address it. Um, but that's certainly a way that we've been trying to, you know, to help out um, in terms of, you know, mitigating any bycatch. And, you know, of course, there can be bycatch issues across all fisheries. So what do we do? So, April, um there's uh at the asmfc which is atlantic states marine fisheries commission we mentioned them a couple of times they have initiated what is called amendment seven to the striped bass cooperative management act and they are going to take a deep dive into every aspect of striped bass management and come up with you know they're going to review everything from goals and objectives to catch and release mortality to what are the expectations of fishermen to uh, the the reference points, which are 
what they're measured on, you know, the amount of those spawning age females left in the water. Um, and it's a two year process and whatever happens, we're probably going to have to live with it for the next 10 years. So, uh, and because striped bass are, you know, so long lived and, and so long to become sexually mature, uh, it takes a long time for them to recover. So right now the rebuilding plan, well, I don't, sorry, I'm not going to say that because the people haven't even initiated a rebuilding plan yet because they're fools and couldn't manage a hot dog cart, but I won't, we can talk about that later. Um, but right now with the changes in regulations that they made last year, it was about 13 years at best. They didn't even follow their own rules to, to have a 10 year or less rebuilding plan. Um, and, and really I'll tell you, we're going to, we're going to slug it out. We're going to, we're going to be in the trenches. We're going to fight every step of the way. This is the iconic fish. And if they mismanage this, you know, shame on them. So what do you do? You have to, you have to get about neck deep in fisheries management and you have to fight for what you love. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how else to put it. You know, you, you better, everyone better hop on our website uh, learn about it, educate themselves a little bit about it and be ready to send the letters in, activate your fishing networks, do all of that thing because it's, it is, it is just going to be stand in the middle of the ring and trade shots and whoever's, whoever's left standing wins. And it's going to be the folks that want to harvest more versus the folks who want to, who are like us and want them for future generations. And it's April, what it comes down to is, are you there to fill the cooler or are you there for the experience? You know, is it a, is it a crummy day if I have 23 speckled trout in my cooler instead of hitting my limit at 25? Am I mad at the guide? Or is it a great day because I saw an Osprey grab a menhaden? I saw a, a you know, a giant 30 inch redfish smash my top water fly and uh and the guide was really cool and i think he's i think we're friends now you know is it is it filling the cooler or is it the experience and that's what it's come down to in our world in our section of the fisheries world where we are it's hatfields and mccoys right it's it's just polarizing line in the sand we fight for every little guy who, who wants to take their kids fishing, other people fight to fill the cooler. Fill the cooler today. Today. Right. And so I think that that's a really important point, April. So, you know, we're not, we're not an anti-harvest group, just like we're not an anti-commercial group. You know, we, we, we recognize that, you know, we're, we're one user of this resource and, you know, we're, we're, we, we want to work with, with partners to, you know, to, to make, to make the system better. But I think when it comes down to priorities, certainly, for folks in, in our world, having a lot of fish in the water is what drives everything, including maybe harvesting some fish. But you need to kind of take the long view and that long-term priority of having a lot of fish in the water versus short-term gains. You know, we don't want to be in a situation where sustainably overfish, you know, we're at a persistent low level, but it's not getting any lower. So maybe that's okay. We don't want that. We want to get back to a place where the stock is healthy. We want to maintain, you know, high standards for what a healthy stock should look like. And we want to make sure that the managers are held accountable if things are not going the right way. So I think that's kind of where where we are in this conversation. 
While I have you here, I'd like to introduce you to Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company brews delicious craft beer that just happens to be non-alcoholic. As someone who is regularly appointed as designated driver, there are times, especially after a long hot day on the water, where I would also like to relax and drink a cold beer after fishing. Athletic Brewing Company is the perfect substitute for those of us who crave an ice-cold beverage without needing to worry about alcohol content. In 2020, Athletic Brewing Company donated over $300,000 to trail restoration and backcountry safety through their Two for the Trails program, where 2% of all sales dollars went to maintaining trails and parks. Because they make non-alcoholic beer, Athletic Brewing Company is able to ship their beer directly to you, and to sweeten the deal, they're offering free shipping on two six-packs or more. Try their award-winning beer at athleticbrewing.com and use Anchor20 to get 20% off your first order. Okay, talk to me about this hot dog cart. You've mentioned that we'd get back to that. So what's happening? Is it just lost all breaks and it's rolling downhill fast? So, you know, again, being from your BC, right? In Canada? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, our law in the States that governs everything is Magnus and Stevens. So the, the Magnus and Stevens Act um, was initially passed in the 70s. And it was to it created this three to two hundred mile barrier off the coast where we didn't allow foreign vessels to fish in our waters. And if you talk to some of the old guys who lived on like, you know, Jersey Coast or you know, they, they would see like Russian trawlers up against the coastline, you know, trawling for summer flounder, whatever. And uh, and it was it was getting a little bit crazy. So. We created the Magnus and Stevens. The Magnus and Stevens Act created this buffer called the EEZ from three to two hundred miles out that, that made these fisheries the United States fisheries. And over the years, the law has been reauthorized, and there's been amendments and changes, and all of these all of these different things that go on with a mature maturization process of something as as robust as the Magnus and Stevens Act. One of the best things that it did was it created eight regional councils. So you have, you know, the Mid-Atlantic, the South Atlantic, Northeast, uh, the, the, the Pacific, Gulf of Mexico Council. And, and those regional councils manage the fish in those regions that are, exist in that three to 200 mile zone. And if they don't follow their rules... You can sue them. So a rule would be this widget fish is overfished. Fish X is overfished. What is your 10-year rebuilding timeline? And if they say this is it and the scientists review it and they say, no, 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 this isn't going to, this is going to be 15 years. Say, well, we're going to go with it anyway. You're sued. That's it. Someone's going to come out, third-party litigation, you're going to hold their feet to the fire. There is a law that gives the managers the political backbone to do the right thing because 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they got all the different sectors in their ear. We want this. We want that. So if you don't have that strict codified (laughs) framework, they're going to try to weasel out of things. That is the living embodiment of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, not the council. It was created in World War II to feed the country. 
okay, to maximize production from the ocean to feed the country during a global conflict. You cannot sue them. Case in point, striped bass were declared overfished over a year ago. They have not established a rebuilding timeline. That is what the law says. It is not 10 years. It is pushed out 13 years at best. They do not, they do not have to follow their own rules. And it has gotten so bad at the commission. We call it the home for wayward fish. So if there's any species that is the least little bit contentious or people want to harvest more of, the councils send it over to the commission because there's no rules anymore. Cobia were just taken from the South Atlantic Council to the commission. I will bet you. Whatever you want to bet, I, I would I would put on a Dallas Cowboys uniform, and I despise that team more than life itself. I would put on a University of Florida uniform. See the Tennessee flags behind me? I would put oh, on I the University of Florida <laughs> uniform if Cobia didn't have a problem in three years. They will fish them into oblivion. The, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Okay, I, I, y'all can't see April. I can. When I say this, I can't wait to see the expression on her face. In their 70-plus year existence, they have never recovered a stock. In their 70-plus year existence, they have never recovered and maintained a stock of fish. You want to go down a list of some of the things that they manage? Sturgeon. Endangered species. Okay. American shad. What's that? We've been under a moratorium with American shad for 10 years. Nothing's happened. Weak fish. There's so few weak fish left. There may not be enough left in the system for biological diversity for them to continue. I used to fish 20 years ago. I could drift for five miles on the Chesapeake Bay. My sonar would read false bottom in 40 feet of water because it'd be 20 feet thick a week fish. They're gone. Gone. We don't catch, we don't see them. Yeah, some, every once in a while, the Hudson guys would be like, yeah, we caught, I caught five one day. It was great. I'm used, I'm like, I used to catch 50 over 10 pounds off the beach at night at will. You caught five that were 12 inches and you think, I mean, I could keep going, right? American eel. So you got sturgeon, weak fish, striped bass, American eel, American shad, tautog, three regions in, in getting massacred in a few of the regions. There is literally nothing in 70 years that they have managed that's in good shape. With all of these depleting stocks, are they just crying shifting baseline? So what I would say is, you know, back to what Tony was saying about, you know, there's no legal recourse here. So what this means is, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, this isn't ASMFC staffers like, you know, scheming to, to undermine fisheries. This is, this is interest groups that have an undue amount of influence because there's no legal backstop to require action. I think that's a lot of it. If you listen, the staffers to a, are good people. I did not mean to insult any of the staffers at the commission. Please forgive me. It's the actual commissioners. They te- they kind of treat things like their own personal debit account. 
Right. Do you, do you want to speak to the structure of the commission and how that informs it? Because I think that, that would be helpful here for understanding. So, yep. so um, every state on the coast, Atlantic coast, you have a, a three, three person contingent for each state. One of those people is either the fisheries director of, you know, so every state like Maryland, it's the Department of Natural Resources, where Willie's from in Massachusetts, it's Division of Marine Fisheries. And you have a fisheries director. Maybe their titles are a little bit different, but that's one person who has that position out of the three. It's the fisheries director for the state. The next person is a recreational representative. The next person is a commercial representative. Those three people on every issue all vote. And then whatever they vote comes out as the state's one vote. So the three people get together, talk about it at the meeting. The state comes out and votes a certain way. So on paper, you're like, oh, okay, well, that looks fair. But like you get a new governor in one of the states who's anti something or pro something else fires their fisheries director, puts somebody else in, all of a sudden a conservation state turns into a nightmare or, or vice versa. Um, and, you know, the commissioners are not paid. So like if you're on a, if you're on the council, it's actually a paid position. The commissioners are not paid. So who the hell wants to be a commissioner? You, you probably have a vested interest in the fishery. You're making money off of it. So, you know, it, it's 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 in, it is unbridled insanity. Willie is probably going to have a heart attack when I say this, but he comes from, you know, this world of like, oh, well, yes, uh, I'd like to make a motion, sir. You know, mm, harumph. Yeah. So he listens to his first uh, Willie's rubbing his hair. April's laughing. So he listens to his first commission meeting. And it's, you know, the call's over with, and he picks up the phone and he calls me. He's like, what the hell was that? And he's like, these people are just saying crazy things. He's like, it's not based on science. They're What they're saying is insanity. You know, striped bass get menopause. You're like, what? Striped bass? Huh? <laughs> no. So, oh, yeah, the old ones, their eggs are no good. You're better off killing them. And we're like, la, 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 la. Like, you, you know, no, they're the best. Like, it's proven. There's a, there's 10 miles of science. Nope, nope. My granddaddy who worked at the bait shop said the eggs are rotten after they're 30 pounds and you got to kill them all. And and you're just like, I, I, I'm in, I live in bizarro world, right? I li- Because if that happened on the council, somebody like Willie would stand up and be like, no, as a matter of fact, I would like to state, you know, Smith versus uh, Cicero et al, 1984. And, you know, and, and yeah, harumph, <laughs> you know, and pass me an old fashioned man, Livingston. <laughs> so, you know, so this would happen on the council where someone would stand up and be like, no, you know what? That ain't science, buddy. And, and the commission, it's like this crazy free for all where like you, you listen to stuff and you're like, nope, not right. That's not science. Mm-mm. Oh, there they go. They're not following their own rules again. And um, I mean, it's 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 seriously it's like abject insanity. So I could give you quote after quote. My favorite one for the past couple of years was Maryland just overfished the bejesus out of striped bass because there was the, the 2011 year class was really robust. They overfished the hell out of them. One of the other commissioners said, you know, hey, Maryland, I don't think those regulations were that good because we're looking at the numbers. You were supposed to curtail harvest. You almost doubled it. 
And the commissioner said, well, can you imagine how many, how much more we would have gone over if we hadn't taken those, those cuts? And you're like, what? you're supposed to drop harvest. You doubled it. And your answer is, can you imagine how much more it would have been if we hadn't taken the cut? And you're like, did he just say that? Like, does he not know that this stuff is recorded? I mean, it's, it, it's insanity. It's, it's, ins- so that's kind of what we deal with. Uh, and unfortunately, the commission manages many of the fish that are most important to the fishermen on the East Coast, at le- at le- especially above, you know, North Carolina and North. And so uh, I see the steam starting to come out of Tony's ears, yeah. uh, which is generally what happens when <laughs> when uh, when this issue comes up. And this is sort of where the where the uh, color commentary goes back to the play by play. And I think, you know. April, I hope that's kind of a useful context that Tony brings into this current discussion around Amendment 7 to the Striped Bass Fishery Management Plan. So that that was initiated in August. And so that's what we're going to be focused on at ASGA for the next, uh, you know, next year plus. Basically, um, there, there are nine items on the table that are going to be, you know, revisited. Uh, things like, uh, you know, the rebuilding time frame. Uh, the reference points, you know, the idea of what are the what are the goalposts by which you judge if a fishery is healthy or not. Um, again, the issue of recreational accountability. So if if our sector catches too many fish, what do we do about that? Um, these are all the kinds of issues that are going to be on the table um, for this new amendment. The last amendment was in 2003. So this is, you know, it's a little bit scary because, you know, there's there's the chance that a lot of the standards that we hold the fishery to are going to be liberalized. But it's also a huge opportunity. It's a chance for us to really, you know, get the word out to the recreational community. Hey, this is your chance to be heard. This is your chance to make your mark on the fishery. And so the first step in that is the um, commission is going to be releasing what's called a public information document or a PID that's coming out next February, February 2021. And that's basically going to lay all the options out on the, you know, all the things that the commission is thinking about when it comes to striped bass management. And really asking the public, hey, what do you think about this? You know, what are your views on, you know, how long should a rebuilding timeline be? Should we have management in different areas? You know, how healthy is a healthy stock? All those kinds of questions. So I think where Tony and I come into that conversation is really being the thought leaders in that, in, in that discussion. So, you know, we'll be, you know, we had a fireside chat, as we called it, um, via Zoom a couple months ago, just bringing folks up to speed on what's going on with Stripers. You know, we'll have another one of those talking about this PID, kind of what our views are. You know, we, we try to we share, you know, whenever we submit a public comment or whatever our views are on something to guide folks. And again, you know, we're in the community, as Tony said, you know, like he's he's out fishing. I'm out fishing. Our board is out fishing. You know, we we try to be credible and reputable, you know, stewards of the resource. And so our goal in all of this is as this conversation evolves, we are, you know, we are the group that people are turning to, um, to understand the issue and to understand what needs to be done. And so our main goal here is maintaining the high standards for fishery management. As, as Tony mentioned, it's not perfect right now, you know, um, with the lack of accountability in terms of legal resource, legal recourse, you know, that's, that's an issue. But in terms of what we have right now, we need to make sure that we don't, you know, we don't let any other loopholes emerge, um, and that we try to, you know, make sure that the framework is in place to, to bring this fishery back. So it's it's the biggest fishery on the East Coast. You know, it's it's how so many people got into fishing. It's how I caught my first saltwater fish in the fly. You know, I mean, this is this is a, a huge part of you know the lifestyle and the economy on the on the, uh, on the eight, coast here. In the April, US. let me let me put it in like layman's terms. So, 
stripe bass are not managed on a hard quota where like, you know, they're like, okay, you can catch 2 million pounds. If you go over, if you, if you catch 2.1 million pounds, your quota next year is 1.9 million pounds. They're managed on something called reference points. So it's basically imagine like water quality standards. Okay. So your water quality standards are up here at this level and you're having a hard time meeting them. Okay. So what, what we're saying is, well, let's fight harder and meet the water quality standards. What the other side is saying is let's lower the water quality standards because then if we lower them, then we'll meet them. Right. So that's exactly with these reference points. A big thing with this public information document is they're going to try to change the reference points, which will lower the target number of adult fertile females in the system. And then they'll be able to turn around and say, what do you mean? We recovered them. Isn't that awesome? And then that average angler, every man's fish will be like, it's a conservation success story. And you're like, no, it's not. They just lowered the standard. Don't drink the water too. You know, it's a man, man-made policy shifting baseline yeah. is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think that between the two of you guys, that you guys are definitely able to play the field properly. I think it's a fantastic combination. Um, I, I realized that we didn't actually cover how you two met. Did, did you just apply on like Craigslist, Willie? You're like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, I'm that's kidding. awesome. How did you guys that's meet? the next person we hire. That's how I'm, that's what I'm going to do. That, that, was my number one, that was my number one uh, source for looking for jobs after grad school. But thank you. So uh, this is April. This is hysterical, right? Right. So I was uh, the the Magnus and Stevens Act, which we discussed before. There was some there were there were some folks who were trying to change it for bad a couple of years ago. They were trying to make it worse, not better. And uh, look, not I don't want to politicize anything, but, you know, that's the job that I do. And I think you can imagine the last four years in the United States conservation has not been at the fore. fisheries conservation has not been at the forefront of uh of policy discussions so we were in the conservation community was in pure defensive mode and like our goals were not to make things better it was like hold the line last man standing plug the hole with the bodies of your dead give up not an inch i mean it was it was a horrible situation so you know, we were we were lobbying hard on Capitol Hill uh, to keep Magnus and Stevens strong. There was a there was a full court press. And and I think any stat, any any Vegas odds maker would have given us under 10 percent chance. You would have made a lot of money if you bet on us. And somehow we won. So in the middle of the fight, in the middle of the fray. I had taken a bunch of advocates from the East Coast, some of them from Massachusetts, and I had set up meetings with the Massachusetts delegation. And I walk into Senator Markey's office and I see JFK Jr. there. And I'm like, oh, crap. Like this kid doesn't fish. This kid's never seen a fish. I have to talk to this kid about fishing. Like I might as well, you know, what's what's my next task? Turning water into wine? And then about five minutes into the conversation, he's like, so you have a boat? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, well, uh, maybe we can go fishing sometime. You know, and it's just I was like, wait, wait a minute. This kid fishes. And then all of a sudden I find out he's just as addicted to it that I am. And he's some poor postdoctoral fellow 
who got assigned to Senator Markey's office and he's stuck in DC where he doesn't know anyone and doesn't know where to fish. And I live, by the way. And what'd you say? I said it was a wonderful office, by the way. It, no, oh, hey, listen, that's the that that is one of the most conservation minded offices on Capitol Hill. God bless the Massachusetts delegation. So anyway, you know, I over the next year, I got to know Willie, turned into this great friendship. And then out of the blue one day, he calls me and he's like, look, man, my fellowship's over. I want to work with you guys. I want to work with. And I'm sitting there like. I got a PhD, like, you know, again, like thoroughbred pedigree who wants to work with me and John. I'm thinking to myself, like, what the hell, like, you know, I'm being punked. Like, where's the camera? Right. Like, there's, there's got to be some video camera and they're going to come out and be like, ha ha, you fool. He would never work with you. So, um, <laughs> so he said, look, man, I, you know, I want to move home. You know, I miss Massachusetts. He's like, but if there's any chance in the world of working with you guys, I'll stay here. And I said, give me a year. I said, if you really want to work with us, I'll raise the money. We'll talk about your salary. I'll do anything in the world. We'll start today raising money for you. And you got my word. Within a year, you'll be working for us. And about 11 months to the day, we put the press release out that he was working for us. So we literally fundraised, made the position for him, you know, again, like from first impressions on Capitol Hill, I was like, oh, God, little Lord Fauntleroy in the senator's office. I wonder what his you know what I mean? I wonder what his daddy did to get him this job. Now I got to talk. First impressions, yeah. huh, Willie? I tell uh, you, it's not just, I mean, like books by cover. It's not just, it's not just us. It, it's with guys. I mean, books by covers, it, it happens in, in every single, you know, I mean, in, in everybody. I mean, in some ways it's not wrong, April. If you go to our website and my, my bio picture is, um, I was at the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuna's uh, annual meeting in Croatia. Uh, wearing my full suit and I stepped out during our lunch break with my travel rod and was catching like, you know, reef fish like they were, you know, uh, three inches long on a, on a piece of prosciutto that I took from the cafeteria. So like, I, that's my picture. So, you know, you can mix business with pleasure in some ways. I, you know, it's, it's got to be a little bit creative. And But yes, you can never judge a book by its cover. It's just such a testament that, I mean, that is how powerful fishing really is is look at all the walks of life and the different people and professions and personalities that it brings together yeah, and so, so and that's, that's um, one of our big challenges too you know is, is trying to make sure we reach all those different people you know i mean the fly fishing community that's you know media savvy and on instagram and all that's that's one sliver of the striped bass recreational fishing community you know we have a, a you know a large group of people we have to reach and we have to reach them where they are and so that's a big, you know, a big challenge for us and something we take a lot of pride in and trying to achieve. Well, I look forward to watching what you guys do next, um, especially being so new. There's such a long, there's a long road ahead. So where can we go to stay up to date on what you guys are up to? So if folks want to learn more about ASGA, uh, please visit our website. It's saltwaterguidesassociation.org. Uh, when you're there, you can sign up for our newsletter and also become a member. And, you know, Tony mentioned that we came together um, to, to represent guides, but we really represent the broader recreational fishing community. So if you're a private angler, if you're a tackle manufacturer, you know, if you're a guide or a for hire captain, really, you know, our, our the, what brings us all together is not what we, you know, is not what we do. It's kind of our attitude about the resource and, you know, what, what our priorities are. So 
definitely encourage folks to head to our website, um, also to like us on Facebook, um, and also to follow us on Instagram. We are at Saltwater Guides Association. And I would just say, like, you know, April, the last thing I would say to the listeners is, like, um, you know, conservation knows no party. You know, the world is so polarized and angry with each other. And if you like one thing, you're a monster to 50 percent of the, you know, the country. And I would just I would just tell the listeners that fisheries conservation is not a, a partisan issue. Like we should all care about if you're a fisherman, I don't care who you voted for. You should care about the future of our fisheries and yelling about it on the Internet ain't going to get you there. Learn, learn the issue. You, you extract so much fun from this resource and it's so much a part of your life. And and for people who are lucky enough, it's part of their job. But for most people, it's just it's a it's a welcome distraction from their day to day duties. And if you love it. And it's given you some peace. It isn't it worth fighting for? Like, is, isn't it worth learning about it and sending a D email or, or 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 attending a Zoom meeting, a Zoom fisheries meeting, and seeing what it's like? Because if we don't get the rank and file guys to stand up and say something, there's not going to be much left. There's not going to be much left for your little girl. There's not going to be much left for my little boy. And it's going to be a pretty sad place. You know, do you do you want it? Do you want fisheries to turn into, you know, what it's like in, you know, some parts of the other world where it's like a pay to fish pond where you catch a Mekong catfish out of a hole somebody dug in the ground and that's fishing? Or is that, you know, put and take trout pond in the middle of a city? Is that fishing? That's great. You know, people can still pull on stuff, but that's not what we want to save the real stuff. So, you know, it's time to fight, folks. Put put down the sabers. This is something we can all agree on. And whatever fishery is, means the most to you, any of these listeners, learn a little bit about, put your time in and fight for it. It deserves, it deserves better from our community than it's getting right now. I'm going to wrap it up right there. Is there anything that either of you would like to add or to ask me? I guess one of the biggest taglines that we say, April, is that we don't pick winners. We're not going to advocate against commercial fisheries because we're recreational fisheries. The winner should be the resource. And and instead of fighting over the last slice of a pizza, we should all work on making the pizza a little bit bigger so we can all get our slice and then there's some left over. So uh, you'll never see us advocating against another sector. We're going to advocate for the resource, even if it hurts us a little bit. And, and I would just add that, you know, in our world, there's kind of this this myth about this triad, you know, between the commercial sector, the recreational sector, and the environmental community. And that, you know, each of these groups is kind of, you know, baked in their interests and they're pushing their agenda. And the reality is that it's a lot more complicated than that. Each of those three sectors kind of has its own, you know, mosaic of people with different interests. And among the three of them, you really have this ecosystem of people interacting and, you know, coming together on issues and disagreeing on other issues. And I think, you know, in terms of this conversation, our main focus is the resource and making the resource more healthy. And we find areas to work really across sectors with, you know, with folks both in the environmental and, and commercial communities when, you know, when when our needs are are similar. Fantastic. Well, I can't thank you both enough for coming on the show. Thank you very much. And um, keep us posted, please. Thank you very much, April. It's been a pleasure, April. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 